listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This episode is scheduled to be released on May 18th, 2020, and as we record on May 10th, we are in the age of social distancing because of the COVID-19 pandemic, so we are recording uh, using Skype instead of in person. Uh, I am here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where we normally record, and Cindy is a few miles away in Newmarket. So how are things in Newmarket, New Hampshire, Cindy? Well, Jeremy, Newmarket is a little quiet right now, but our little community has really been coming together, uh, supporting our local restaurants by ordering takeout and purchasing gift cards. And also our first responders have been holding weekly vehicle parades to cheer up the kids. And well, I think it's for the adults too, not just for the kids. But uh, so yeah, the community is really coming together. Oh, that's really good to hear. I love Newmarket. It's a great little little town, and it's a uh, little town, yeah, yeah. I think of it as kind of uh, an up and coming uh, New Hampshire town, kind of like Portsmouth uh, in miniature in a way, and uh, kind right. of yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good to hear. So uh, this is episode sixty one of Lighthearted, and when I I knew this uh, this episode would be released on May eighteenth. I was looking online to see what has happened in history on May 18th. Uh, on this date in 1897, Dracula by the Irish author Bram Stoker was published by Archibald Constable and Company in London. And on the same day in the same year, Herbert Henry Dow founded Dow Chemical in Midland, Michigan. Margot Fontaine, the English ballerina, considered the first lady of British ballet, was born on May 18, 1919. She once said, quote, the one important thing I have learned over the years is the difference between taking one's work seriously and taking oneself seriously. The first is imperative and the second is disastrous, unquote. And I also uh, saw that today is the 50th birthday of Tina Fey. Who once said, quote, whatever the problem, be part of the solution. Don't just sit around raising questions and pointing out obstacles, unquote. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, today's Lighthearted is part two of a two-part interview with Dave and Lynn Waller, owners of Graves Lighthouse in Outer Boston Harbor. I'd like to just quickly recap a little bit about Graves Lighthouse. Uh, so could you help me do that, Cindy? Sure, Jeremy. Graves Lighthouse is a 113-foot-tall granite tower on a wave-swept ledge at the entrance to the Broad Sound Channel in Boston's Outer Harbor. It was built between 1903 and 1905 and was, for many years, the most powerful light in New England, with a first-order Fresnel lens that rotated on 400 pounds of mercury. Keepers lived inside the tower until its 1976 automation. The lighthouse was sold via government auction in 2013 to businessman Dave Waller. Dave owns a visual effects company in Boston. He and his wife, Lynn, a graphic designer, live in a restored fire station in the Boston suburb of Malden. They've completed a great deal of restoration on Graves Light since they bought it, and you can follow their progress on their website, graveslightstation.com. 
Also taking part in the interview is Bob Trapani Jr., the Executive Director of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Let's listen to part two of the interview with Dave and Lynn Waller, owners of Graves Lighthouse, now. Graves Light's old first order Fresnel lens is in storage at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. It was removed in the 1970s, but you've done something absolutely amazing. You've created your own first order lens, and it's uh, it's mostly been assembled at the lighthouse itself. Uh, you've assembled it using parts from other lenses, but much to my surprise, when we arrived here today, the lens is currently about a couple of hundred feet from where we're sitting here and you've added more parts to it and it's almost almost a complete lens at this at this point yeah tell us tell us about that well um i think lynn had pointed out early on that the lens that is in there right now which is called a vbr 25 it's a kind of an old probably an from, the, from the 80s yeah oh wait a minute no it's not it's one it's not an led it's a it's a rotating uh, pli- it's acrylic an, lens. Yeah, it has incandescent. Yeah, you haven't got like automotive bulbs in it. Which is, uh, and and I might ask Bob to say a little bit about this. My again, my friend Bob Trapani is here, who is not only director of the American Lighthouse Foundation, but is a lighthouse technician uh, for the Coast Guard. Bob, most offshore lighthouses. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say the majority of offshore lighthouses, at least in the northeast part of the country have been converted to the uh, VLB44, the LED lights, most of which are solar-powered, but Graves still has the VRB25, the rotating. Yeah, that's that's mostly true, Jeremy. I think what we're seeing is it's probably half and half right now. Okay. Uh, it's a little bit of time, and, and there's an expensive course to them, but uh, yeah, the uh, VRB25 usually has anywhere between a 35-watt to a 100-watt halogen lamp. And uh, the six acrylic panels, it really just produces kind of like a pencil beam. Mm-hmm. It does not in any way compare to the uh, first order Fresnel lens that would have yeah. uh, been in Graves Light in the past. And Graves actually had the most powerful light in uh, New England for, for some years. Yeah, we, we um, give talks every now and then uh, to various civic groups. And we met a woman from, where was it, Winthrop. And Winthrop loves Graves Light. I yeah. mean, they just. Oh, yeah. I lived in Winthrop for 15 years. Okay, yeah. They, everybody there is like a big, big fan of Graves, which is awesome. And uh, she said as a little girl, she just remembers the light coming in and playing in her bedroom window, going through the curtain and on the wall. And she just loved to go to sleep and watch that light come through her bedroom window. And now, of course, that wouldn't, wouldn't happen with the current optics that are in there. So Lynn and I were both, you know, kind of missing. The fact that there was, wasn't a giant Fresnel lens there, but uh, obviously the Smithsonian likes to keep it locked up in a box and not show it to anybody and, and not display it anywhere. So that was never going to happen. We didn't even bother calling them because that would be a waste of time. Uh, and as private individuals, we really wouldn't be able to petition the Coast Guard or anybody to, to put a lens in. That's both the disadvantage of being a private person and the advantage of being a private person is you can kind of do what you want a little bit more. You're not hamstrung with a lot of regulations. So um, we found a couple of pieces of a first order lens and we put them out there just to display, just so people could see what the first order lens kind of looked like or the scale of it. And we found a few more pieces and we found a guy in Australia, a company called Chance Brothers. Um, 
And he was able to provide us with enough panels to make an entire lens out of panels from probably seven or eight different lighthouses from all around Australia and New South Wales and that whole part of the, of the world. Uh, and the pieces that he couldn't find, we were able to make from antique prisms that he had and made uh, brass frames for them to match the prisms that we have already. And so the next step was to just make an armature to frame the whole thing so that it didn't fall apart because they're, these were just panels. They needed a frame to hang on. So we built that from scratch. Again, my son, with his CAD knowledge, was able to lay that out on a computer to get all the measurements right. And then we had the pieces water jet cut and we did all the drilling and tapping and bolting it all together. And we're very close, probably within a month or two of finishing the lens. Uh, and we have a working burner, an 85 millimeter IOV burner, which would be the kind that you would use with a first order lens. And um, we've had some some friends who are mechanically inclined who thought they'd give it a go and they figured out how to get it working. So it's kind of neat. I'm um, not sure we'll ever be able to put it out there, but it's an ask that we're going to ask someday when they take out the VBR 25 and maybe they'll let us put one in and light it up on National Lighthouse Day or something. <laughs> I, I did find out, I was reading about uh, Fresnel last night and the the 200th anniversary of the first lighting of his first lens will be happening in 2023. Right. On the Cordouin Lighthouse in France. Yeah. So that's July 23rd. So I thought maybe that's a day that we should all look forward to and <laughs> and do something, you know, even if it's not with our lens, but I think maybe across the world. Because, yeah. Because there's a lot of lives that uh, that are owed to him, you know, for the amount of people oh, that he saved. that's for sure. By the, by the tens of thousands, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there'll be all kinds of observances of that, as yeah. there should be. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's, uh, it's mind-blowing to see what you've done. <laughs> It really is, Thanks. and I, I I don't use that that term loosely. <laughs> really, <laughs> nobody I don't think anybody has done anything close to what you've done with that. I like to call it a Frankenstein lens, and I mean I mean that as a compliment. It's, no, it's a Franken lens. It definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> but optically, it works. Uh, we've done a lot of careful calculations and so forth to make sure that it would project properly, and it uh-huh. does. Bob, anything you'd like to add or ask related to that lens that we looked at just before we started this uh, interview? It, it stopped me in my tracks. I can tell you that. <laughs> I looked at it. Whoa, that's awesome. Uh, but at the same time, I think, Dave, I think you're going to enjoy the uh, VLP44 LED when it finally goes in because that's fascinating technology. And I think you're going to find it brighter when you're coming out to the uh, to the lighthouse. That's good. Yeah. We actually, um, when we go out at night, we definitely use the lighthouse as a aid to navigation to be able to find our way out there. Now, Dave, uh, you've accomplished a lot with volunteer labor, some of it being your family. You've also hired people for a lot of work as well, but uh, you've used, I know, volunteers for things like the painting of the iron components of the, the lighthouse. Are you seeking volunteers at all at this point? Is that something if people live in the area and they want to help, can they contact you? Oh, yeah. And, and um, people will contact us every now and then. And we, we try to do is put a day together, uh, keep keep a list, basically, and then put a day together when the weather looks good. And we can do something that a group of people can do. And painting is good for that because everybody knows how to paint and uh, they can just kind of pitch in. Sometimes people have a specialty skill 
and and that's fun too. And sometimes we've had artists come out and just paint uh, on canvas mm-hmm. uh, for the day. Um, we've had the place uh, National Lighthouse Day a few times. We just put a, a sign up that just says we're open for, open for tours today. It's kind of impromptu because we feel like um, it's very important to share this if as best we can uh, because it was always a public place. It was built by with public money. Yes. And we're not trying to be really closed about it. But then again, if we're out there just hanging out in our vacation house, it's kind of hard to entertain everybody that comes by in a boat, you know. But the volunteer thing is is a great way for people that really want to get out there and, and have a look at it. And we don't we don't work them too hard. You know, it's we have a nice lunch and we provide uh, drinks and, and so forth. And everybody kind of has a nice time. Watch the sunset and then we leave. You've done a lot of historical research. We mentioned that earlier. A lot of it was done through the late uh, Candace Clifford, who went through the holdings of the National Archives for everything related to Graveslight. What are some of the most exciting things you've been able to find historically? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, there's so much, and, and we just keep finding more. Um, there's this story of Harry Wynn, who was an assistant keeper in about 1910 or 12, and he was out there over Christmas, and you know the, nobody was coming to help him because the, uh, the waves were just too much for weeks, I think. And he finally was able to row to shore to get some supplies, and he rowed back and uh, to Nahant, right? To Nahant, yeah, to get supplies. And he rowed back in his boat capsized before he got back to Graves. This was on Christmas Eve, I think, and uh, he lost all of his supplies. And then the the relief boat came the very next day, Christmas Day or the day after, and he just quit. He had it in his hat. And his great-grandson contacted us uh, and told us more of the story. I said, whatever happened to him? He said he became a truck driver. <laughs> so that was an Edward Rowe Snow story to start, and this fella... Um, sort of wound up telling the rest of the story. And we've had the the man who was the architect, uh, the draftsman from Graves, his family has contacted us and uh, we've sent them pictures and so forth. And it's it's just the people that we meet that have connections, people that were lost on the Mary O'Hara, uh, their families have contacted us, which was a shipwreck in the 1940s. Um, they've contacted us and I'm meeting a woman who's a descendant of Thomas Graves uh, in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Um, so um, just the stories. Uh, there, there was one keeper during the Coast Guard era who was sadistic and would shoot seals Ugh. for just for sport. And uh, the other keepers almost threw him off the top of the lighthouse. Ugh. And they, they, they called it in and they hauled him out and they fired him. Wow. Um, so, you know, there's kind of good and bad. There was there was the day when uh, one keeper told me that they had a TV, and boy, that was important because it was a boring place to be a lot. Um, they'd watch Red Sox games, and it would always break. This was in the 1950s. And they got it repaired, and they were bringing it back, and it was hanging from a, a rope because everything has to be brought in by a rope. Uh-oh. And the wind caught it and just smashed it against the tower. <laughs> <laughs> so they went back to the radio. <laughs> Dave, speaking of the sea, time marches on. The place was automated, but the sea never changes. So what have you learned about the sea that the keepers themselves would have seen the same thing? What about the sea out there that you've learned at Graves? Oh, that's a great question, Bob. Um, I didn't really know much about the sea when we bought the place, and it really showed in the uh, damage that I was doing to the boats that we had bought and the sort of uh, dangerous landing on the ledges, because it is dangerous. and what I learned was that um, the weather is everything, that the ocean is the most 
powerful force, it seems, on the planet. And that if it wants to, it will sweep you away and without a trace. Uh, and so th- that healthy respect for what the weather is doing and probably more importantly, what it's going to do is is really important. Uh, are we going to stay or are we going to go? Are we going to get off the boat and land at graves or are we just going to turn back with all our provisions and go home? And and you d- you need to make that call because you're not the only one on the boat. There's other people that are relying on you. And if you're the captain of the boat, you're making that decision for everybody. Um, and uh, so you, you have to be very careful about, about safety. Uh, if you're too careful about safety, you probably shouldn't even have a lighthouse though because it's inherently dangerous, just the entire nature of it is. So you have to sort of accept that there's going to be risk when you go out there. You're looking really just to minimize those risks, but you're never going to eliminate them. Right. It's just like the keepers. They had to get back on that place, and they weren't always going to be great days getting on that place. I think what the average person doesn't realize when an offshore light is, is how much frustration can go into preservation projects. You can plan, but it can be a sunny day. But if that sea, that wind direction, a certain wind direction might be problematic, you just put everything on hold. Yeah. Well, we went out... um Oh, two years ago, ab- you're absolutely right, and it was a good day, and they were saying there was going to be some weather, but not not so bad, and I was out there with an electrician and a plumber working, and it whipped up into a full gale, and um, we had bought a, a Coast Guard boat that was retired from the Coast Guard of 25-foot response boat, and we were using that to get back and forth. Great, seaworthy boat, wonderful, wonderful boat, and uh, we watched as the boat dragged its mooring all the way onto the rocks and smashed the boat to bits on the rocks and it never left its mooring it was still tied to the mooring but the block actually dragged across the bottom of the harbor and um and there was nothing we could do to get out there to save it, it would have been a suicide mission and the boat never sank which is amazing but the engines just got ground into bits and the whole hull was so battered that we really couldn't do much but cut the the top of the boat off the whole cabin and we turned it into an open decked barge and we towed it full of materials last summer uh, about 15 trips we made full of stainless steel pipe and timber heavy stuff um, to build the footbridge one of the major uh, parts of graves um, is the oil house and the footbridge that's what really makes the photos uh, makes you just go, oh, that's Graves right away. Because it's not unique to lighthouses, but it's a bit unusual that this offshore lighthouse has that sort of structure mm-hmm. around it. It makes it kind of cool, too. It's, it's its signature. Yeah. Yeah, one of its signatures, yeah. And the, and we learned that that bridge was knocked down several times uh, in the last hundred years. The latest was a blizzard of 78, took out a big section of it. And then the no-name storm in, was that, oh, 91 or 91? Yeah. October 91. That took out the rest of it. And then the roof on the oil house went. And so we, we replaced the bridge last year and we added a story to the oil house and were able to put a brand new roof on the oil house, made a copper with a ventilator just like the original. So uh, the place really does have that old look now. Mm-hmm. I think next time you guys come out, you'll have to check it out. Oh, for sure. One of the cool things in your blog is the observation of wildlife near the lighthouse, uh, especially harbor seals. Yeah. You've even named some of them. Yep, yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and we and we the babies that will come out. Sometimes they come out in the middle of the winter, which I can't believe that 
those animals could be born then and survive. Yeah. But they're bright white, you know, when they're born, and then they gradually get spots, and then they'll they'll start to turn dark like their parents. But the moms will take the babies, and at high tide, they'll nudge them into the seaweed-covered rocks, and then as the tide goes down, they've essentially made them a, a playpen. And then the moms will go fishing because they're nursing and they need a lot of they need a lot of calories, and the babies just sit there and sit in the sun and are quite happy. So sometimes we'll come out there to work and we'll just look over and there's a little baby sitting in the seaweed, um, and the mom is nowhere to be seen. So um, she probably tells them like, "You stay there and you don't don't go anywhere because you know they're probably a, quite a tasty snack for all." There's a lot of sharks out there now, um, but we I saw three whales this summer. Uh, at Graves, I was actually on our mooring, which is only 150 feet from shore, from the from the uh, the ledge, and a whale passed underneath my boat. Um, oh. Yeah, which was quite a surprise. Um, um, we've seen minkies and humpbacks out there. Okay. Um, there's of course there's lobsters and there's schools of juvenile pollock that swim on the um, on the eastern side of Graves. Um, lots of shorebirds and seabirds. And it's part of a migration route, we think, because there's uh, different times a year you get different t- kinds of birds. We've seen a peregrine falcon who's been living there for about a year. Um, there's ducks, and then there's fewer ducks because of the peregrine falcon. Different kinds of ducks. Eider ducks come in the colder weather. Mallards come in the warmer weather. And I'm not a bird guy, but I kind of, we got a bird book, and I think maybe we're becoming good bird people because they're fascinating mm-hmm. to look at. Yeah. Yeah, well, what a great place to watch, watch nature in all all its forms. Yeah, yeah. You lost a tool shed in a storm in March 2018. I I had misread a report on that, and I was afraid the uh, oil house had actually been oh. swept away. But still, that losing that tool shed had to be a tough loss. I remember that storm. It was actually like three or four days of uh, just one incredible high tide after another. It did a lot of damage at a, a number of places. It sure did. And uh, you posted one photo of waves going over the top of Graves Light. Yes. Which is well over 100 feet high. Yes. So uh, what a what a memorable storm. Yeah, that was, um, that was a real killer uh, storm. And what we learned, because we had a camera out there, it recorded the shed going over is that the waves hit the lighthouse and they seem to travel around, wrap around to the north. And so uh, they just come with such ferocity onto the top of the uh, the dock that we have there. And it, it took, it was like, there there's the shed and there it's gone. It, it was so fast. It just reminded you of the power of the sea. And that shed, the base of the shed was 20 feet above sea level and the shed itself of course was probably eight or nine feet tall and it came over the top of that shed and and wiped it out and the shed from a cost standpoint didn't cost that much money but getting it out there cost a lot of money because we had to have a barge and a crane uh, bring it out so uh, we lost a generator and we lost a bunch of tools and so that was that was a a loss but that's just they kind of that's what happens on an offshore lighthouse, I suppose. I don't think you could make anything storm-proof right there. Well, the lighthouse seems to be storm-proof, the lighthouse itself. Yeah, yeah, it's done well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Knock on. I think I'll... There you go. (laughs) Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, you've converted the oil house into basically a living space uh, by putting a, a second story on it and a new roof, beautiful new roof, 
and you rebuilt the walkway to the oil house. So that is a good, does give you extra living space. You have no intentions of offering living space to uh, the public. <laughs> well, we did when we bought it because we thought that might help defray the costs of fixing yeah. it up. Mm-hmm. But we had no idea how much it would cost to fix the place up. Right. And that's why when our partner Bobby uh, approached us, we thought maybe that's the only way that we could get to afford to, to build this place because we did the math and... Um, even if you rented it for $1,000 a night, you're never going to get to to pay this thing off. It, sure. it would be a money-losing operation. And the other problem is is that the amount of cancellations that we would have and the disappointment that people would have. Right. Because people would be, they could plan a year ahead to do this. Right. Maybe even fly to Boston. Right. And then, oh, sorry, it's just too rough out. Yep. And so we reluctantly said we just can't. The practical side of things just took over, and we said we just can't do this. It's not like we didn't want to, but um, it just wouldn't have been possible. And also, who's going to turn down the sheets? And who's you know? There's a lot of trips to provision an offshore lighthouse that are that drive the cost of operating it way up. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you were saying that, I just remembered a story that that Bobby Sager told me when I visited with him. He was saying that one day his friends Sting and Peter Gabriel were visiting him. And they talked about going out to visit Graves Light. And I think maybe he was in touch with you about doing it that particular day, but it was too, it turned out to be too rough. So that visit didn't happen. Yeah, it's pretty hard to to say no to them. (laughs) (laughs) The thought of that that happening struck me pretty, pretty funny. Yeah, he's brought Sting out a few times. Oh. Uh, I've I've gone out with him. um, And. I've found that he is a very, very nice person, uh-huh. which is always nice to hear when the when a star turns out to be like cordial and friendly and and very approachable. And I think that I'm sure I wouldn't speak for for any star in particular. I'm sure that there's times when they get pestered by, you know, they're in a restaurant and everybody comes up to them and it wrecks their meal. And then there's other times when they can let their guard down and just enjoy the day. And so I think that place. For him was a place where he could just relax and uh-huh. and just you know have a cup of soup and watch the waves and just relax. And just, well, that's like any of us would want to do. That's great to hear. Sting also appears to be in great physical shape, so getting onto Graves Lighthouse was probably no big big deal for him. Yeah, but um, I'll tell you something. That is the biggest problem. That's the Achilles heel of the whole place is yeah. getting there, and we're working on that this year. We just got uh, the permitting all squared away to do a landing pier, so that. Um, the idea would be that you could approach at high tide in a small boat, like a 25-foot boat, and tie up briefly, disengage, uh, disembark onto a platform, go up a gangway, and then be right up on the on the dock. And then you'd take the boat out to the mooring and for the day, because it's a 10 or 12-foot tide out there. So you couldn't keep a boat on a pier for that amount of time. And we can't have a floating dock out there because it would just get destroyed. But um, we got it engineered. We got it permitted by oh, 15 different state and federal organizations. And that construction is going to start this summer. So we're really excited about that. Wow. And that's probably the last big construction project out there, other than the submarine pen that the boys want to put out there. Uh-huh. They want to have like a place that submarines can dock underwater. And I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I got a question for you, mm-hmm. Dave. Sure. When you get a project like this, inevitably there's ups, downs, highs, lows. What's been maybe the most disheartening aspect of it at times? 
And then what's been the most exhilarating for you, do you think? Wow. Oh, it was disheartening to lose the boat, but then it was just a boat, mm-hmm. you know, and it was something like uh, no one was injured. So it, right. it really didn't, you know, it's just a material thing that can be replaced over time. I don't know, Lynn, can you think of any disheartening things that... I think that early on when you were getting used to the behavior of the sea and feeling very excited and gung-ho about doing the renovation, that there were a number of times that you had a boatload full of workers and supplies and a big checklist of things to do, and the the ocean basically said, not today, yeah. and you had to get sent back, and you had all those workers to pay and all that time lost, and you seemed a little disheartened about that <laughs> yeah. a couple of times. All right, yeah, I remember uh, those days. disheartened about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because mentally you're geared, you're geared up, you know what I mean? It's like almost like you're playing in a football game, and then they cancel the game. So, yeah, yeah. And we've been let down by a couple of contractors that uh, wanted to go out there and work on it and then sort of di- didn't follow through and that's been kind of tough but the best times are much more exciting and they're anytime we get a crowd out there um we just have a, a really good time whether we're working or playing um because everyone's just so happy and uh, we've had a couple of fourth of july parties where we brought friends out and people raft up and you know there's it's just like a it's like a big old party on the ocean and and uh, when the tall ships came a couple of years ago we had a blast and it was foggy that morning and we woke up to not being able to see anything out at Graves. And as the fog lifted, we realized that all the tall ships had anchored all around Graves. And one by one, as the fog cleared, we saw these magnificent wooden ships. You know, that was pretty special. And you know what? One by one, they saw this magnificent light. <laughs> They're like, oh, what's that doing there? <laughs> so, there, you know, there's been this. And then I've been out in a couple of nor'easters. Um, with some friends and it's kind of hard to find people to go sometimes because you don't know when you're going to get back (laughs) and you can't leave your boat out there so we get dropped off and we just bring all of our provisions with us and they go out when it's still calm yeah before the storm yeah Yeah. it's brewing but not going yeah Yeah, and it's generally pretty calm before those before they hit um and then it's it's pretty exciting i mean it's it's raining sideways and the wind is howling and we have an anemometer so we can watch the wind. It's almost like a game to see how much faster it's going and the whole place starts to groan and moan and and you feel like you're a hundred years ago, you know. Do you feel that shudder, like the thunder of the sea hitting? Does that like that concussion? That... Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, the barometric pressure drops and so when waves hit and so forth, it compresses the air and it, you can feel it in your chest. <laughs> and it's really, it, the, the power of the ocean offshore is is an awesome thing to feel and it's i think if we were on a ship we would be absolutely terrified but in the lighthouse you it's not scary and and the way you watch the dynamics of the waves uh they don't just come from one direction and then pass through and go to the other side they create these kind of holes in the ocean when a big wave comes and then waves will come in from the opposite side just to fill in that water that's Mm. and waiting for the next big wave to come in and all these crazy things happen in a storm 
<laughs> you learn your you learn the most about a structure in in weather like that, which almost nobody can really be out in those types of things. You know, the keepers would have saw that. But where's that water coming in? How's this lighthouse reacting? You know, what's holding? You know, those are things you learn in, in that side. Yeah. Outside of the fun. No, you're right. That's the best time to fix a leak is during a during a storm because yeah. you know you know where the water's coming in. Yeah. And you're probably the first people to be in that lighthouse uh, in weather like that in close to 50 years since the light was automated. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, let me ask you a broad question. Why do lighthouses need to be preserved? Okay. Well, there's lots of people on the water. And the people in big ships on the water, I don't know if they look at lighthouses. I, I can't speak for them. Um, they just they have their electronics that they use. But I think most of the people in small boats really do more visual. They just look around and say, there's an island there. They, they, they might look at their GPS once in a while, but it's not as critical because they can be in shallower water. Um, so the lighthouse is a great day mark uh, just to be able to fix a location for them. We're big into history though, Lynn and I, and uh, we really love saving historic structures and going to museums and that sort of thing. And so it doesn't matter whether it's a lighthouse or it's uh, the Saugus Ironworks or, you know, um, Benjamin Franklin's, you know, house or something. It, these things are really important to uh, to learn about the past and therefore about the future, you know. I think also there's a romance about lighthouses that there's just a feeling of safety about them when you see them. And maybe you feel like your journey's at an end and you made it and it welcomes you to a port you know, so there's something kind of spiritual about a lighthouse that uh, I think is really special. And I don't even think you have to be a mariner to feel that. Dave, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing lighthouse preservation in the future? Hmm. Money and water. <laughs> <laughs> that, That's true. That pretty much says it, I think. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if you want to expand on that, but that, that pretty much sums it up. Well, they're fiendishly uh, high maintenance. I'm sure even the on, uh, onshore ones are because they're on the coast and they just get a beating like a like a vacation house would get a beating on the coast. But the offshore ones seem to take more of a beating. They're better built too, right? They're not made of wood. Um, but I would think that unless you have uh, really deep pockets, it, it's almost a constant battle just to get a couple of bucks to buy paint and, and beg for volunteers and so forth. And it's... It's a struggle. And back in the old days, those keepers were the maintenance department and they were paid a meager amount of money, but it was a, enough to get by on and it all kind of worked out. But nowadays, it's just not, it's a money pit, these things, I mean, sadly. And it's a shame because we are the wealthiest country in the world. We seem to have plenty to spend on other things that might appear a little frivolous, but it really would be nice if uh, the federal government would put a little more effort into maintaining these historic structures that they built so long ago, but they get their budgets cut too, you mm -hmm. know, and then they, and they have a core challenge to maintain aids to navigation and to obviously protect the coast and that sort of thing. And that comes first and pretty little lighthouses kind of come second. Yeah. Uh, if we could recap how people can follow your progress. Uh, we mentioned the website earlier and there's also social media. Could you? Yep. Recap we're, that for us. We're um, graveslightstation.com is a website that my brother maintains, and he's maintained it from the very beginning. He's done a great job of uh, adding historical stories as we've uncovered them. Um, we feel like because it's a private house, 
the the one great way to visit it is to go to the site and see yes. what we're up to. So we are a very open book about what we do, the good and the bad, and we try to share all the stories that we can so that people can feel like they can come along for the ride. And then the Facebook page is great because it's a great way to quickly say, oh, something happened today. And then it's it's much more timely than the website. And um, we do get a lot of people that write in to tell us stories about graves or ask us questions and so forth. So it's a little more interactive uh, a way to communicate with us than the, the website. The website's great because it just goes back all the way to the beginning. And it's a great way to dig through and see what we've been doing. I think there's also some videos on YouTube. There are, yeah. Some that we didn't even take and some that we didn't even know existed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's, a, I think somebody walked through the whole place and videotaped it with like a GoPro on their head. Um, <laughs> and uh, we woke up one morning and somebody was flying a drone right in front of our window, <laughs> which seemed kind of uncool. Like, yeah. you know, it's not necessary to to do. You wouldn't do that on shore, you know. Right. Um, but uh, you're not actually supposed to fly drones anywhere near graves because it's within the uh, national park system right and it's also in um airspace for logan airport yep so two illegal things about it yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah speaking of preservation jeremy i think you know when he we saw the national historic lighthouse preservation act of 2000 come on board i think a lot of us in the lighthouse world were conditioned to think that it mean the lighthouses whether they were federally state or local or municipally owned we're nonprofit, and this element of lighthouses going into private hands was really somewhat of an unknown. And as the years have passed, I know for myself speaking, I've just gained such an appreciation for people like you and Lynn, um, because there just isn't enough government agencies or nonprofits to care for all these lighthouses. All of a sudden, private individuals like yourself are really important to the future of some of these lighthouses, and it's a part of this overall team and so to hear this story about graves light it's it's truly inspiring so thank you guys that's nice of you to say thank you yeah we're we're doing our best i i um i don't think i could save more than one lighthouse in my life but i'm glad we got to save one (laughs) (laughs) well i certainly concur with what bob just said and and let me just uh, finish by asking you one more question for bonus points here. Uh, but Bob kind of kind of asked this, but it's just a slight variation on what Bob asked a few minutes ago. But what what's been the most fun aspect of this all this for you? Oh, you want to take that one or? Uh, well, I think what I observe when I see you having fun with it is when you are trying to solve whatever the next design problem is or. Uh, organizational problem you really get a lot of uh, onshore fun out of that and then actually finishing things or achieving them when you're out there and having your plan actually work out you seem to be pretty satisfied when that happens in terms of fun I mean I let I some of my most fun times out there are when we've brought just a another couple and we get to spend the night and hang out up in the kitchen and then stand out on the on the balcony and look at all the lights all around us and just enjoy it for the magical place that it is the essence of the lighthouse people being brought together to other people right yeah (laughs) yeah that's well said i would completely agree with that it's fun it's fun to share yeah yeah well thank you so much dave and lynn waller it's really special being here and talking to you about this and thank you for spending so much time with us and having us in your home today 
and I need to get back out to that lighthouse, which I haven't <laughs> been inside since well before you owned it. And it's been uh, a lot of fun uh, admiring it from afar as you've been restoring it. And I can't wait to see it in person. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. It's been thanks. fun talking with you and Bob. Thanks you for coming to our home. And uh, we'll have you guys out in uh, maybe decent weather. How's that? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks. I had met Dave and Lynn Waller a few times before, but this was my first time at their home. It was a real pleasure. And as far as lighthouses that are privately owned, they rank right at the top of the list as owners. They've done an amazing job. In New England, an obvious comparison is Ford Reiki, the owner of Halfway Rock Light and Maine's Casco Bay. And uh, he was a guest on this podcast earlier. Halfway Rock and Graves are similar lighthouses, and they're two great restoration success stories. I am just so impressed by both of them. Our thanks to Dave and Lynn, and our thanks also to everyone with the U.S. Lighthouse Society at Point No Point in Washington and everywhere. Be sure to check out uslhs.org for information on domestic and international tours, on educational resources, on the Lighthouse Passport Program, and all the resources offered by the U.S. Lighthouse Society. We know that these are tough times for many lighthouse organizations and museums, as well as for so many individuals. Our families come first, of course, but I would encourage anyone who's able to do so to make a donation to their favorite lighthouse organization, whether it's the U.S. Lighthouse Society or any other organization that's close to you. Every dollar helps, especially in times like these. Be careful and stay well, everyone. As always, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. Shine, let it shine, let it shine